All right, church, let's get out our Bibles tonight to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, almost as easy to find as Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at tonight the creation of uh, humanity. Genesis chapter 2. And if you want uh, then the outline of this teaching, uh, then I uh, posted it online for you so you can grab that during or even after uh, the service uh, if you desire. But a couple of weeks ago when we were in Genesis chapter 1, we tried to make the point that the book of Genesis is designed to teach us about God. And often when we approach these early chapters of Genesis especially, our desire is to think about science, and we are going to think about science again tonight for a portion of this teaching, but really in one sense you could say that Genesis chapter 1 was a primer on Jehovah God. Who is God? What is he like? It was an introduction to who God is for the ancient Israelite people as they were coming out of their slavery in Egypt. And if that's the case of chapter one, then chapter two is a primer on humanity. Who is God in chapter one, but who are we in chapter two? So this passage is going to continue the creation account, and in so doing, it will show us a lot of things about God, but we're going to learn a lot of things about ourselves, who God has made us to be. And throughout the text, we're going to read of God's intention for human beings, his desires for human life. In this chapter, we're going to wrestle with questions and answers, but questions to things like, why are we here? Does God have a purpose for me? How can I live a healthy work-rest balance? Are we more valuable than animals, and why? And what is the difference between men And women, and why is marriage important? And though we don't live in the kind of conditions of Genesis chapter 2, I mean, it was a sinless and perfect place that we're going to read of here in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2 still calls out to humanity, and especially it calls out to Christians, because as we discover Genesis chapter 2, we discover God's original intention for humanity, his desire for us. And the blood of Jesus is designed to bring us back to and beyond what we have in Genesis chapter 2. So for the believer in Jesus Christ, this chapter is a very special section of Scripture because it at least in part gives us a vision for what God wants to do in our lives through the blood of Jesus. But before looking at Creation from man's vantage point, which is what chapter 2 is. Chapter 1, the creation from God's vantage point. Chapter 2, the creation from our vantage point. Uh, I should mention that this is, uh, the, it opens with, in chapter 2, the seventh day of creation. You might remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at the first six days of creation. But chapter 2 of Genesis begins with the seventh day of creation. You guys know this, what I'm about to say, I'm sure. But you guys know that the chapter breaks are not divinely inspired. And right away in the Bible, you see an example of a poorly placed chapter break. Uh, Because all the six days of creation, the seventh day should be included in that section because it fits with that section 
of Scripture. But this seventh day is actually not a day of creation. It's a day where we learn that God rests, but it wraps up the creation story of chapter 1. So let's read it together in verse 1 through 3. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, these three verses are beautiful by themselves, even separated from chapter one, and they show the perfect completion of creation. Notice, God has made and moved the elements, but here he's presented as the blesser and as the sustainer of the universe. He made it, but now he'll bless and sustain it. He finished here in verse one and two, creating, and now he'll enjoy all his work that he had done. And because of the finality of creation, the seventh day receives special treatment in the paragraph. Did you notice it? It doesn't follow the order of the first six days. You know, in the first six days, God would speak something into existence. He would then assess it And then it would say the evening and the morning were the first or second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth day. But instead here, the seventh day breaks that mold and becomes the day that God rested on, the day that he blessed, the day that he made holy. I'm not smart enough to really pick apart the Hebrew of this paragraph, but a man named Alan Ross is, and I'll quote him here. He says, there are 35 words in the Hebrew text of these three verses, which is a multiple of seven. The three middle clauses in the original have seven words each, and the adjective seventh is within each clause. It's like as the author was writing these things down, God was highlighting that not only was he resting and setting apart the seventh day, but in the way that it was written, the number seven is just so highlighted so as to say, this is a special day, the day that I will rest from the work that I've done in creation. And for the ancient Israelite, the lesson would be abundantly clear. You must remember, they came out of a culture in Egypt that believed in a plethora of gods. And they were going to the land of Canaan and would interact eventually with the Babylonians who believed that other gods were responsible for creation. But here the Israelites would learn that God created the heavens and the earth. He made it all. He's the creative force, the great artist and innovator and sovereign power who spoke all that is into existence. But notice there that it says that God rested. Isn't that an interesting idea, that God rested? The word is, uh, comes from the word for the Sabbath, which uh, means not just to rest, but to cease, to stop. And it isn't as much of a word about how to recuperate from exhaustion. That's clearly not what's happening with God. You know, like, poo, I am pooped after those six days of creation. It just means that he ceased, he stopped, in order to enjoy what he had just done. That's what it means, to rest. It means to stop. It's the same word that's used later in the book of Job, when, when Job's friend, friends stopped talking. They ceased. They rested from their words. Or when the manna 
ceased to fall down for the people of Israel. It stopped being delivered. And this doesn't mean, of course, that God stopped acting and moving or working on the seventh day. Uh, He was, of course, sustaining and is still sustaining life and holding the universe together. What we have here is an anthropomorphism. That's a a fancy word for saying uh, an action of God in human terms, an action of God in human terms. So it's not that God actually stopped, but this is the way the author describes the ending of creation. And it was through the ceasing or resting that, uh, of God that he communicated he was done, ready to enjoy this universe. Now, I should mention that some people in looking at Genesis chapter 2 and in looking at the creation of the cosmos, they see in it God creating his true temple, that the universe is designed by God to be the house of God that he dwells in, and that his true throne could never be found in the subsequent temples that the people of Israelite constructed. And there are verses like this throughout Scripture. Isaiah 66, verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? The idea idea there from God is that, yes, I want you to build me a temple, people of Israel, but this universe is my temple that I am inhabiting. And all that helps us understand that God's original purpose in creation, the ultimate destiny of those he redeems by the blood of Jesus, is to create a physical space for physical people in which they could enjoy his presence. In other words, it wasn't meant to be that we would be born, then maybe get to be a priest who could then maybe get to go into a temple to maybe interact with God. No, God's original idea is that we would just be born and by nature of being human beings, would be inside his house, growing up in his presence, enjoying him. That's his original desire, his original intention. And this helps us understand what the new heavens and new earth will be about in the future. It's not a place for us to get our little cloud and master the harp for all of eternity. It's a place for us to enjoy God, a place for us to dwell with God and partake of him. Now, I want you also to notice there in verse 3 that it says that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Okay, this is going to become a major theme all throughout Scripture. We're going to have plenty of time in the weeks and months ahead to talk about the Sabbath for the people of Israel and what that meant for them and what it means for us. Um, But after the fall, Sabbath rest became something that, that God's people had to seek after. You see, right here in these verses, everything's perfect, everything's right, Human beings are just enjoying God. But after the fall, Sabbath rest became something we have to fight for. On the seventh day of the week, the people of Israel were supposed to cease from their work. And every seven years, they were supposed to give rest to their land. And when they went into the land of Canaan, they had to fight in order to rest. They had to strive in order to rest. And now, of course, Christians enter into the rest of God by the blood of Jesus Christ, amen? 
Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17 says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So if you're in Christ tonight, you have access to a special Sabbath rest that Jesus has designed for you to walk in throughout all of your days. Now, like I said, we're going to have plenty of time to talk about the Sabbath in the coming weeks and look at what it means for us to perhaps even practice Sabbath today. But the thing that Israel would learn from Genesis chapter 2 is that God practiced Sabbath. So when God asked them to practice Sabbath, what they would be able to say is, it is godly or godlike to enter into this Sabbath rest. Now, for all the big deal that the Bible makes in the Old Testament, especially about the Sabbath, it's pretty interesting that there's not a lot of descriptions on exactly what they were supposed to do on the Sabbath. You know, we know what they weren't supposed to do. They weren't supposed to work. They weren't supposed to buy and sell, all that kind of stuff. And the Pharisees, you know, and other legalists over time made all kinds of rules about things that they were allowed to do and weren't allowed to do. But from the word of God himself, there really aren't a ton of details on what they were supposed to do. It just kind of seems like it was like this free day in which they were to think about how can we rest, cease, enjoy God, enjoy our family, enjoy our friends, and they were supposed to then pray about it and be creative in their uh, expression of their Sabbath rest. Now, I'm just going to say this for a second. I wish that more Christians would embrace the concept of Sabbath in their daily lives and rhythms. I've never been a stickler, stickler about a particular day or anything like that, but I've always thought it a very God-honoring practice to choose a day each week whatever day it is, to rest. Christina and I have always done this in our lives together as long as we've been a married couple. We've tried to set aside a day each week to get away from the stresses of life, the hustle and bustle of our regular responsibilities so that we can connect to the Lord, connect to each other, connect to our family, and connect to our friends. And on top of that, I've always felt that Another important element in my life is the keeping of a daily appointment with God, like I talked about this last Sunday. And to me, that's a way to experience for an hour or so the Sabbath rest of God in the course of my everyday life. And I also think that if possible, it's good for a believer to take longer rests, longer breaks at times. I'm always a big fan of taking rest-based vacations. You know how it is. A lot of people are adventurers. They like to go on adventures for their vacations. They like thrills and all of that. And if that's your thing, you know, that's fine. But I'm a guy who likes to take rest-based vacations. And here's why. I want my everyday experience with Jesus to be the exciting part of my life. And then I want to go away on vacation and have no excitement at all. So I want to be on mission with Jesus and then be able to pull away from the mission field, so to speak, and slow down and receive from the Lord. But I've also wished that many Christians would condense their lives to focus on God. Now, I want to use the word slow down, but I'm afraid that people will misunderstand me when I use that phrase. 
I think a lot of people here slow down and they think it means taking everything that they're already doing and just dialing it back five or 10%. But I think that a lot of Christians would benefit from simply simplifying their lives. Stop committing to so many things. Stop hustling so hard to acquire things which perish. Instead, simply seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And every single thing that I just mentioned, an hour with the Lord each day, a day of the week to rest before the Lord, all of these things are ways to trust God. They're ways to trust God because it takes dependence upon God to forsake everything the world prioritizes in order to seek him. You have to trust that he'll take care of you. Think what it was like for ancient Israel on that seventh day of the week when they were resting before God. All the nations around them were working. All the nations around them were making money. All the nations around them were buying and selling. And there they were, almost frozen in time, looking around and saying, man, am I going to be at a disadvantage because I'm not doing what they're doing? But God would prove to them over and over and over again that he would bless them and take care of them if, he would pri- if they would prioritize them, uh, him in their lives. Okay, before we move on in the, to the rest of the chapter, because this is kind of the end of the seven days of creation, um, I wanted to talk a little bit more, like I did a couple of weeks ago, about uh, science and creationism and get into some different views of creation that uh, various Christians uh, hold. Okay, and in thinking about these days of creation that we just looked at, looked at I think it's fitting for us to just take a little time, especially considering the evolutionary theory that's prevalent in our Western world, just take a little time to contemplate how we should treat uh, the seven days of creation that we just read about over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, We already, in the first teaching I gave to you, took a little bit of time to think about how belief in a personal, uh, powerful, good creator God who's without a cause is a reasonable belief, because if you just keep going back, cause after cause after cause, there has to be an uncaused causer at some point for everything that we see and know. But I just want to think for a second about different views that Christians hold regarding uh, creation. I, I should say that I believe that intelligent design, that there's an intelligent designer, I think it can be argued very well without Genesis 1 and without Genesis 2. And also, I don't think it's wise for us to subject these first couple of chapters of Genesis to this like mania for science or this hunger for science that we have in our modern world. That's part of the reason why I tried so hard in Genesis chapter 1 to show you that the ancient Israelites would have seen it as a primer on who God is. They're being introduced to this uh, creator God. Still, though, I think it's good for us to think about these things. So, All that said, there are two prominent views in the Christian community, okay? The first prominent view is the young earth view, uh, which holds to a 24-hour interpretation of the word day in Genesis chapter 1. So each day that God created in the young earth view took 24 hours, and there was a day, there was a night, and then the next day, God did his next thing. The old earth view is the second view. And it holds to a universe and an earth which are billions of years old, meaning the creation account describes a process of billions of years. 
Some believers in this camp think that the days of creation are 24-hour days, but have long periods of time in between them so that other things can develop during that long period of time. Now, each view has positive and negative merits, but let me be clear. Only a view which denies the historicity of the Genesis account or says it is filled with errors is incompatible with true Christianity. This means that believers of both of these views, old or young earth, if they hold to the truthfulness of the account, should be friends together, allies for the gospel. Both believe in the supernatural creation of life. Both oppose naturalism, and both reject the concept of common ancestry, believing instead that God uh, created the species distinct from one another, you know, that we're not related to the animal kingdom in any way, shape, or form. Okay, though they differ on the age of the earth, both camps should not see their view on creation as a test for orthodoxy. They should confess that the fact of creation is more important than the timing or the means or the method of creation. For both camps, naturalistic evolution is the true enemy. Creationists are merely debating the details, but at least they're both holding to ex nihilo creation in the first place. So, so that said, let's think about both these views. And I've read a bunch of books to put together the thoughts I'm about to share with you, but one of them that's really helpful is a book called The Doctrine of Creation by Douglas Potter and Norman Geisler, and I'd recommend that book to you if you'd like to get more in-depth to some of the things I'm going to share with you uh, right now. So let's think first about this young earth view. Young earth creationists, like I said, insist that the days of creation are six successive 24-hour days. So that means... If I'm doing my math right, 144 hours is what it took for God to create. And the reasons that young earth creationists feel this way or think this way uh, are, are these. First, the word day in scripture usually means just that, a day, 24 hours of time. Second, every time days are numbered in the Old Testament, it's a reference to 24-hour days. Third, the evening and the morning is the way that all the days are described in Genesis chapter 1. And that seems to be a clue that these are literal, actual days, the evening and the morning. And fourth, the establishment of lights on day four of creation started the day and night and seasons that we operate under today. So, it signifies a literal 24-hour day. Okay, so for all of those first four reasons that I told you about just now, the old earth creationist would point out that there are exceptions to how the word day is used in the rest of Scripture and also the way evening and morning are used in the Bible. So even though it's rare to see it used in a different way, it is at, they are at times used in different ways. So for them, they'd say it's not impossible to imagine that Genesis is recording another one of those exceptions and is not talking about a literal day. But the young earth creationist goes on to say, well, I've got more reasons. Uh, another reason is that six days on with one day off in the Jewish work week, we're supposed to mirror God's creation. But there are times in Scripture 
when a numerical comparison is unit for unit, not minute for minute. Like what, what I'm meaning by that is, uh, remember when the people of Israel had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Why did they have to do that? Because their spies went into the land and had no faith, and they followed them, and how long were their spies in the land? For 40 days, right? So there are times where you don't see a direct correlation between one unit for another. Sixth, plant life, the first of which was created on the third day, cannot survive for millions of years without solar light, which came on the fourth day. This is another reason that young earth creationists would hold out. But the old earth creationists would say, but light was created on the first day as well, perhaps meaning the appearance of the solar system was just not visible until the fourth day billions of years later. Seventh, plants cannot live without animals for millions of years because they depend on carbon dioxide, and the plants were made before the animals. But not all plants and animals, the old earth creationists would say, are interdependent, and it's possible the ones that need each other were created together. Another uh, argument from the old, or excuse me, young earth creationists would be to say an old earth implies death before Adam. And I'd be willing to guess that if you're a young earth creationist, that this is probably one of the big ones for you. Uh, you know, hey, an old earth implies that there were billions of years of various forms of death before Adam came along. And the Bible teaches in Romans 5 verse 12 that sin is the thing that brought death. But the old earth creationist who says, no, the earth is very old, would point out that the Bible teaches people died as a consequence of sin. And at the very least, plants were dying before the fall of humanity because Adam and Eve were eating them. So, uh, you know, it's at least possible uh, that, that that's not a rock-solid case. And then finally, the last thing that a young earth creationist would say is that the old earth view holds to macroevolution which depends on long periods of time for life to develop. And that's the only reason why it's so popular amongst even some believers. Uh, but the reality is, when you look at Christian history, there were theologians like Augustine who believed in that creation took a really long time, and, th and they believed this many years before the theory of evolution began to permeate our Western uh, world. Okay, so that's a little bit about the young earth position. Okay, the old earth creationists, of course, think that the days of Genesis describe long periods of time. And there are certainly places in scripture, like I mentioned earlier, that the word day is used this way, including the day that we just read about in Genesis chapter 2. We are still in the seventh day of creation in one sense, aren't we? God rested from his creative work on that seventh day. Uh, they also point out the growth of vegetation over the whole earth on the third day would have taken a lot longer than 24 hours to accomplish. And the sixth day includes too many events for one 24-hour period of time. I mean, think about everything that took place on the sixth day. The creation of the land animals, the garden was cultivated, Adam and Eve were... Uh, Adam was created, Adam looked for a mate, the animals were named, and then Eve was created. That's a lot to do in one 24-hour period of time. Then, of course, there's the science that the old earth creationist appeals to. They point to things like the speed of light 
and the distance of the stars from the earth, the rate of expansion of the universe, the fact that early rocks have been dated to be billions of years old, and that the rate salt runs into the sea indicates multi-millions of years for current salt levels in the ocean. But the young earth creationists would counter and say that we don't know if each of these measurements is a constant. Perhaps the ocean was created with salt in it already, uh, or the rate accelerated after the worldwide flood. Perhaps lead deposits in the rocks already existed at creation, or maybe an event occurred in times past, like the flood, which accelerated the rate. And perhaps, listen to this, God created light rays when he created the solar system, enabling them to hit the earth at the right moment. Now, there are other views besides these two views as well. There's the revelatory day view, which thinks Adam or Moses received a vision about how creation took place and that that vision took 144 hours to unfold for them. There's various gap theories that have placed a gap somewhere in the Genesis 1 account to allow long geological periods. There's the ideal time theory, which says that God created everything with an appearance of age, uh, which some people would counter, would charge God with deception, you know, trying to trick us. <laughs> the alternate day age view says that each day of creation was 24 hours, but separated by billions of years. And the literary framework view believes that Genesis 1 and 2 were ancient literary devices which used terms like days and evening and morning to cover certain periods of time, like you would say chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. Okay, with all this being said, I'm sure many of you are just thinking, like, just tell me what you think, Nate. <laughs> I'll just say it like this. It's hard for me to imagine the word day being used in an unnatural way in Genesis chapter 1, which would make the creation a more recent event. I acknowledge, though, that there are obstacles to this view. But what I want to point out at this point is to just say that science and Scripture are not in conflict. People try to present the case that way. It's not either there's no God or there's six 24-hour days of creation. Science and scripture are not independent of each other. With the Bible as just a religious book that talks about religious things and is incompatible with science because it transcends reality and is just a spiritual book talking about spiritual things. I thought what I would do right now is I would just quote to you a book that I read recently called Confronting Christianity. And in it, the scholar writing the book she just takes a little moment to talk about MIT. She just says this. She says, I live a short walk from MIT, the sacred temple of scientific endeavor in the United States. Stop a student in the infinite corridor that meanders through its buildings and ask if he or she thinks there are any Christian professors at the institute, and the answer will likely be no. Yet the roll call of Christian professors at MIT is impressive. I've already mentioned, she mentioned earlier in her book, nuclear science professor Ian Hutchinson, professor of aeronautics and astronautics Daniel Hastings, and electrical engineering professor Jing Kong, none of whom was raised as a Christian. 
But there are more. Artificial intelligence expert Rosalind Pickard, who invented the field of effective computing. She became a Christian when she was a teenager. Chemistry professor Troy Van Voorhees came to Christ when he was a grad student at Berkeley. Biological and mechanical engineering professor Linda Griffith became a Christian when she was already an established scientist. Other Christians include Professor of Mechanical and Ocean Engineering, Dick Yu, Chemical Engineering Professor Chris Love, Professor of Biological Engineering, Chemical Engineering and Biology, Doug Laufenberger, History Professor Ann McCants, and even neuroscientist and former MIT president, the first female to hold that position, Susan Hockfield. She says the list goes on and it extends far beyond MIT to leading Christian scientists across the world. If science has disproved Christianity, no one thought to notify these people. <laughs> I just mention that because, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not a scientist and, uh, you know, can't sit here and, you know, explain these things all that well. Uh, but it is, I think, comforting to know that there are solid Christians who are at the top of the scientific world and profession who believe in the creation account. Uh, William Phillips, who is a Nobel-winning physicist, said this. He said, I see an orderly, beautiful universe in which nearly all physical phenomena can be understood from a few simple mathematical equations. I see a universe that, had it been constructed slightly differently, would never have given birth to stars and planets, let alone bacteria and people. And there is no good scientific reason for why the universe should not have been different. Many good scientists have concluded from these observations that an intelligent God must have chosen to create the universe with such beautiful, simple, and life-giving properties. Many other equally good scientists are nevertheless atheists. Listen to this last sentence. Both conclusions are positions of faith. Because the reality is none of us were there to watch all of this unfold. So we have to take a look at the evidence and make a determined decision on what we believe, on what we think. So those are some words about science and, and creation. And I'll just close by saying uh, that there are good and faithful Christians who are orthodox and fundamental in their beliefs who do hold to some type of evolutionary process which God used to form matter. And I think there's hurdles to their view uh, but they are Christians who hold to a high view of Scripture nonetheless. So I just wanted to, you know, state that case uh, tonight. But let's move on in Genesis chapter 2. That's what we're studying tonight, right? Okay, so let's go back to that. And we'll move on. And, and, and now what we have is the creation of man on the sixth day from God's vantage point. It says in verse 4, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Okay, here the whole narrative shifts. When it says, these are the generations of. Did you see that there in verse 4? These are the generations of. Other translations say it different ways, like the history of the heavens and the earth, or the records of the heavens and the earth, or the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. But that little phrasing when he says, these are the generations of, uh, indicates a new section in the record. And some actually take it as a clue as to how the book of Genesis was written and compiled in the first place. 
that there was perhaps some sort of record keeping uh, of various books that were written down that Moses then accumulated, acquired, processed, and then wrote again himself. Like, for instance, the next section is going to come in chapter 5, and it says there, this is the book of the generations of Adam, and then it gives his history. Or Genesis 6, verse 9 is the next one. These are the generations of Noah, and then it gives his history and story. So this might be the way the book of Genesis was organized. But what is clear is that we are in a fresh section which details creation from man's perspective. It's, it's like we've watched in chapter 1 the blimp view of creation, and now we get a zoomed-in view of that sixth day. Okay, but before we go on, we should notice the fresh title that's given to God in verse 4. He hasn't had this title yet in the book of Genesis. He's called the Lord God. And probably in your Bible, if you're holding it tonight, the word Lord is in all caps. Uh, and the reason for that is because this is a combination of two titles for God, the word Elohim and the word Yahweh, or some say Jehovah. Elohim stresses the creative and sovereign power of God, and Yahweh expresses the covenant-making nature of God and keeping uh, nature of God. So we put these titles together, and we call him the Lord God, with the Lord showing up, like I said earlier, in all caps. Okay, this double title helps us see that God is the God of creation, but he's also in close relationship with his people. He goes on to say in verse 5, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust, uh, man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Okay, let's notice first the timing of man's creation. Notice there in verse five, it says that there was no bush of the field that was in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Okay, this doesn't mean that there wasn't wild vegetation. What it means is farming had not yet begun. Out in the field, uh, no one had cultivated, planted, all of that because man had not yet been made. And we also notice there in verse six that there was no rain on the land. Uh, so, in other words, though creation was yielding produce by itself, no one had yet arisen to cultivate uh, new produce here on earth. But another thing we have to notice is also there in verse 5. We have to notice that God had not caused it to rain on the land. Instead, there was a mist going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Isn't that interesting? A lot of people have concluded because of these verses that before the flood of Noah and because of the canopy that we read about in the creation that God made where he separated the waters above from the waters below, that there was just this like mist that was over all of the earth creating a tremendous greenhouse effect. The Israelites, though, the, the original readers of Genesis, they knew exactly what rain was, so Moses announces to them they hadn't had rain yet at this point. But there is a little bit of foreshadowing that's kind of ominous in those details, because this is 
the perfect garden of Eden. Everything is going well. But the ground has not been cultivated and has not been planted, and rain has not yet come. But the astute reader knows that what's going to happen? Adam and Eve are going to sin, and the ground is going to be cursed, and that work is going to be made more difficult, and mankind is going to persist in their rebellion against God, and there will come a moment where the rain is unleashed in a catastrophic way in the events of Noah's flood. So there's a little bit of foreshadowing here when the author or when Moses announces, hey, there was no rain yet and the ground had not yet been cultivated. Well, let's go on uh, into uh, looking at the phrase there in verse 7 that God put in humanity the breath of life. First of all, it says in verse 7 that God made Adam from the dust of the earth. No, God just made him from the soil, took the material of the earth and constructed him. But he wasn't alive. God didn't do this for anything in the animal kingdom. But with Adam, he breathed into him the breath of life. This is really neat because as human beings, we are earthy. We come from the earth. The the name Adam is actually from the Hebrew word for ground. You know, it's like, Adam, remember where you came from. You came from the ground. You came from the dirt. But not only did he come from the dirt, he had the breath of life in him. And all throughout Scripture, in places like the book of Job or the Proverbs, uh, God continually reiterates that human beings have the breath of life inside of them. The breath of life in Job, are spiritual thoughts before God, an awake you know, nature before God. And in Proverbs, it speaks of an active conscience. In other words, this breath of life was designed to express God's image and love so that we could follow him, so that we could know him. So listen to this right now. Human beings, we learn, are from the dust of the earth, but also have the divine breath of life inside of them. And and I think it kind of works like this. I think every human being walking the face of the earth leans towards one or the other. Huge portions of our society think that satisfaction comes from leaning into their earthiness. Their bodily appetites, their bodily desires are the things that they think will bring them satisfaction. But God, we learn, made us for himself, so that we could desire him and be satisfied in him. He's the only one who could satisfy our thirsty souls. That's why we have the breath of life in us. That's why Jesus, when he came along, said, if you believe in me, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water, and you will never thirst again. It's because he knew how we are designed as a species. So here's a good question to ask. Where is my life trending? Not my life in particular. I mean, you can't ask that, but your life. (laughs) Where is your life trending? Is it trending towards the dust of the earth and earthiness, or is it trending towards the breath of life? I would encourage you to prioritize your spiritual person. By the grace of God, we can know God and unlock this side of who we are. 
Well, let's go on to read about this Garden of Eden in verse 8 and following. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in, the Eden, in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so here's man's first home. It's called a garden in Eden. This was going to be a perfect environment for him to live in and also a perfect environment for, uh, as a test for his obedience. Well, let's just think about a couple of things. First of all, the, we have to think about what it really means that it was a garden. Sometimes in our mind we read Garden of Eden and we, we think of like gnomes or little fountains or flower beds and that sort of thing. But in Moses' era, the great kings of the earth, when they built a garden, it was more like a massive park filled with streams and trees and fruit-bearing trees that was clearly landscaped. It wasn't just natural, but it was rolling and huge and massive. This seems to be more in line with what God built for Adam. There were fruit trees and shade trees and streams and pools all over the place. Notice also the location. He, he calls it a garden in Eden. Now, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Eden is the garden, but Eden is bigger than the garden. It's a larger space, but the garden is inside of Eden. And uh, the geography would have changed a lot since the time of the flood, so Eden is now lost. We don't need to look for it. But the word Eden means garden of abundance. Okay, and in this garden, there were two trees. These are the central things that Moses wants us to know about. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to talk about these trees in a moment. But notice here how God put the man whom he'd formed in this location. So he's supposed to work the ground, but he's also to enjoy all this food that is coming from the garden. And the food of these two trees would eventually test our ancestor, Adam. So let's read about it in the verses that follow. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Uh, Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay, the description of this place is one of abundance, you guys. It's just an incredible place for Adam to be. If humanity was going to subdue the earth and bring it into subjection like God had told him to, then this description shows us a wonderful world for us to occupy. This is, this is kind of like God's plan. This is what I want it to look like. Now, some people get a kick out of trying to figure out its location, you know. But like I said earlier, I, I believe that too much has changed topographically since the pre-flood world for the description here in Genesis 2 to mean much in our modern era. There are four major rivers, and a couple of the rivers, uh, their names 
survived, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the exact rivers that, you know, in the same place back in Genesis chapter 2. Interestingly enough, though, when one reads the end of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, the end of the book, you know what you find there? You find the tree of life. You find other trees. You find a river of life. And you find precious gold and gems, just like was found here in the Garden of Eden. This is all meant to help us understand that the eternal state will have some similarity to the first state. It's like God is getting it back for us through Jesus. Paradise will be restored better than before in the new heavens and new earth that Jesus is preparing for us. So it says in verse 15 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now when when Adam and Eve sinned, the ground was cursed. And at that point, man's work became exceedingly more difficult. God said, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread. But that isn't to say that man wasn't supposed to work before the fall. He was given a job to tend the ground, to work it. Uh, it was exceedingly wonderful work. There were no thorns, no thistles. I mean, Adam just thought he had the best green thumb in history. He's like, man, everything I plan, everything I do, it just works. And that's the way his job was at that time and in that place. He was called to cultivate the gift that God had given to him. But Like I mentioned earlier, Adam's work in this garden might have had a spiritual component to it as well. You see, his work was a way for him to worship God. In fact, some scholars believe that work here in Genesis 2 would be better translated to worship and obey. So when Adam was working in this garden, he was worshiping and obeying. The the later priests in God's tabernacle, when they went into the temple, they were worshiping, but they were doing it through their work. And that's what Adam was doing there in God's temple, God's territory, God's creation. So if Adam's work was actually his worship, then I wonder if when we approach Genesis chapter 2, we could get a little bit of a vision for our own lives that could maybe energize our own work environment a little bit. Because the the reality is, you know, what do pastors talk about a lot, you know, in the Bible? They talk a lot about, like, community together. They talk about your personal relationship with Jesus. They talk about getting together with small groups. They talk about studying the Word together. They talk a lot of times about family issues or singleness issues, marriage issues. They'll talk about these different things, and I'm included in this pastoral group. But sometimes we could come away with the impression that the Bible has nothing to inform our work. And the reality is you're going to spend a lot more time at work normally than you are with even family at times. A major bulk of our lives is going to be spent in the workplace. And here we learn that the workplace is a worship place. It's a place for us to worship God through our work. Think about the way Paul said it in Colossians chapter 3. He said, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving or you are working for the Lord 
Christ. And when he said that, he was not writing to a bunch of pastors or people that were working in a church or something like that. He was talking to common slaves in the Roman Empire who happened to be believers. In another place, he said in Ephesians 6, verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So I want to challenge you with that. Can you see your work or your schooling being done for Jesus? You know, not primarily for your manager or your employer or even your customer. You know, the customer is always first. Well, put Jesus first. Treat them as you would treat Jesus if he was there present with you. You see, our work and the quality and goodness of it is a form of worship. And when you see your boss or others as a symbolic stand-in for Christ, it fills you, I think, with deep inspiration for the job that is in front of you. I think it can make any life exciting to embrace this view. Okay, but let's go on in the passage, verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. But the first thing that we have to notice here is how God uh, commanded Adam. He told Adam what was good, and he also told Adam what was bad for him. He's like, Adam, the, that tree, that's a good one. <laughs> you eat that one. This tree over here, it's a bad one. Don't eat that one. It's God who's making the determination on what's good and bad. Adam had a choice, though, and it was a life and death choice. And for ancient Israel, when they read this, you know what they would have thought of? They would have thought, you know, we have the same decision presented before us. Because God gave them all kinds of commandments. And at the end of giving commandments, he would say things to them like, therefore, as I've set all these things before you, blessing and curse, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19. So in one sense, Adam's story is like all of our stories. It helps us understand that we should listen to what God says is best and good and do the things that he says because they are good and healthy for us. But the consequence for disobedience, he says, was death in verse 17. In the day that you eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die, uh, God said. Now, when Adam ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we'll see next, um, next time we're in Genesis, uh, he, of course, didn't die right away. You know, he, he lived for a long time, we're going to discover in Genesis chapter 5. And uh, because he and Eve covered themselves with leaves after they sinned, a lot of people think that the only death that really happened to Adam when he ate this fruit was spiritual death, that he died spiritually before God. But it'd be better for us to see the full package of death, uh, that physical and spiritual death came to humankind as the result of sin. Spiritual death was immediate, while sickness and decay were also immediate. But then, uh, after many years of life, each human being succumbed to physical death as well, which is part of the curse. And somehow, when God says this to Adam, he understands it. 
he understands the grave nature of this warning. I mean, if, if God warned us, hey, do that and you'll die, we would know exactly what that means, right? We've, we've known people who have died. We know what death is. But for Adam, he'd never seen it, never experienced it in his life and being. But somehow he knew the grave nature of this warning. He knew it was something severe, something unwanted. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, some theologians even find a way for the animal kingdom to be experiencing death before Adam's fall. So perhaps he knew about it through them. But somehow, some way, he knew that death was a severe outcome of eating of that tree. But what are we to make about these trees or make of these trees in the Garden of Eden? Okay, let's think first about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, here's the question. What does it mean to be knowledgeable about good and evil? What does that mean? Does that mean that Adam just walked around totally morally unaware? You know, like, I don't even know what good is. I don't even know what evil is. I'm just clueless as to all that kind of stuff. That, that seems impossible. You know, for, for, for Adam to be made in the image of God without knowing what goodness is, without knowing what love is. Uh, besides, it doesn't seem to make sense that God would hold Adam to a, accountable for a moral failure that he wasn't even awake yet uh, to. Uh, but I think a clue is found when Satan tempts Eve, he said, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. I think it's like this. Before the fall, mankind's condition was one of childlike trust in God. You know, he knew that there was good and he knew that there was evil. But he went to God for all of those definitions. God, what's good? God, what's evil? God, what's allowed? God, what's out of bounds? And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil then paved the way for, listen to this, life without God. God's commands and God's opinions were no longer sought, though they were still needed. And man began after eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thinking that he could live life without his creator. And if that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil provided, then it screams of the independence from God so many in our fallen world crave. And people want to cast off the yoke of God's morality and God's judgments. They don't want him to declare what is good and declare what is evil. But to find it for themselves and define it for themselves. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 1. He calls it a debased mind that has been given over to a backwards thinking and is under the wrath of God. So I think the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was a way for man to choose to be the one to make the determination of what is good and evil in replacement of God. But the tree of life, what is the tree of life? Okay, so some people treat the tree of life like, like uh, what's that old Indiana Jones movie where he's like ser searching for that cup that if you drink it, you'll live forever? You know, some people think, you guys know what it is. So some people think that's what the tree of life was like, like a wellspring of everlasting life. And part of the reason people think that is because after they sinned, God withheld 
the entrance from, to the Garden of Eden from them, lest they eat uh, from the tree of life and live forever, it says in Genesis 3, verse 22. So it's a view with uh, some scriptural precedent. So what some people have thought is that just one bite of this tree would lead to never-ending life, which leads to the question, like, why didn't Adam eat from that tree first? <laughs> you know, couldn't he have just eaten from that tree and then gone and just done whatever he wanted? Like, I ate from the tree of life. I am immortal. I am invincible. So others have had a view of the tree of life, which is more nuanced, which would state that this was the fruit that would sustain Adam's life forever if he continually partook of it. Now, I don't know everything about the tree of life, but I do know that it will be in heaven. It says in Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So the, the ultimate fruit of the month club. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Okay, so the tree of life really is a, a mystery in Scripture. It's hard to really pin it down exactly, but it will be with us for all of eternity, those who believed in Jesus. Okay, what, what should be obvious, though, is how God gave Adam a choice, life or death. And because the choice had to be real, man was given the ability to choose death and to choose against God. And the temptation was real as well. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was appealing. But what I do want to mention is that there is another tree of life in Scripture. Not just the one in heaven, and not just the one in the Garden of Eden, but the one that we refer to as the cross of Christ. That's referred to as a tree in Galatians 3, verse 13. It's the exact opposite of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was planted by God, but the cross was planted by man, specifically the Roman government. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was beautiful, but the cross was terrible, ugly, abhorrent. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was forbidden by God, but the cross is God's invitation to humanity. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil keeps us from God, but the cross makes a way to God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil resulted in sin and death, but the cross of Jesus results in righteousness and sanctification. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil banished man from paradise, but the cross leads us to paradise. Remember what Jesus said to the robber that was being crucified with him who believed in him. Today you will be with me in paradise. And perhaps the cross of Jesus Christ is just a way for a human, human being in one sense, you think of it like this, to make the statement, I no longer want to be the one who determines what is good and evil. I want to submit myself to God and his ways. I want to repent and turn in his direction, and believe in him who the Father sent to save me from my sin. Okay, let's end by looking at the last seven or eight verses of Genesis chapter 2. And look at the creation of, of woman. We've seen the creation of man, but now we'll see the creation of 
woman or the creation of Eve. It says, then the Lord God said, is it, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Okay, the first word I want you to see in verse 18 is the word then. Okay, this is an exciting word for Moses. He's basically announcing Adam is about to get married. It's like then this is what happened there in the garden. Okay, now I want to say this. Not every human being, not every believer or Christian is called to a married life. Okay, but the pattern of Adam's life is instructive for everyone uh, who's called to marriage, but also every human being, because he was alone. He needed companionship, and we all need that, whether we find it in marriage or otherwise. But Adam found his purpose and mission in God, listen to this, before God brought his spouse to him. In other words, Adam was busy working for God, obeying God, allegiant to God, before Eve came into his life. He was loving and serving his God, cultivating the garden and the, that the Lord had put him in. And I think in that state, you could make a strong case to say that Adam was satisfied and had the joy of the Lord upon his life. This is challenging for some people to believe that they could be happy in an unmarried state with the Lord, with his church, being obedient to him. But people like Paul the Apostle said things like this in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7 and 8. He said, I wish that all were like myself. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. He thought of it as a gift in his life. And I used to teach that it was one of the spiritual gifts that God would give, a spiritual gift of singleness. And I'm sure that God could do that and give someone a unique ability to be able to live the single life. But I think when we think of it like a spiritual gift, then it creates a weird discontentment for everyone who thinks, well, I don't have that spiritual gift. I don't have the gift of singleness, therefore I'm discontent in my singleness. But I don't think that's the way Scripture treats it. The, the, the gift of singleness, it's like this. It's the opportunity of singleness. Uh, the things that you could do for the Lord in that single state. But it should be noted here that God saw Adam was alone. Okay, so he says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him in verse 18. Okay, this is supposed to really stand out to us by this time. Because remember how we saw in chapter 1, Every single day, God's like, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then we get to this, and he says, this is not good. <laughs> he sees Adam there by himself, and he says, this is not good. Okay, now God has made us like himself. Okay, God, is in, God, God didn't need us for relationship. He's a triunity. So Father, Spirit, and Son, they were have been in perfect relationship with each other or with himself uh, for all of eternity outside of time and space. But Adam was in a trinity, right? So he's made, and it's him and God. Okay, so he has just this one-way relationship. There was no other human being for him to know and to love and to serve and to care for. So God set out to cure Adam's aloneness. Yeah, and he's going to complete his creation by forming woman. So 
But, but first we have to notice the way that God shaped Eve. It says there in verse 18, he says, I'll make a helper fit for him. We're going to learn that he did not shape Eve from the dust of the ground like he formed Adam. Uh, he instead took from man's side and formed the woman from that pre-existent material. Okay, we're going to see that in a moment. But I, I mention that because of the word helper in verse 18. That wording is significant. It's significant that she came from his side. It means that she would be a helper that corresponds to him. She'd be his perfect companion or complement, his opposite, his over and against himself counterpart. In other words, she was going to share his nature. Whatever Adam received at creation, she also would receive. Okay, this is really important for our understanding of gender or our understanding of the sexes. You know, though God chooses to be known by masculine pronouns, and that's the way God refers to himself all through Scripture, his image is really only accurately seen and known through both male and female genders. Part of Adam was taken from him and placed in Eve. God's image was found in her too. She would complement what Adam now, because of this creative work of God, lacked in his nature and life. But another thing that we should see is that though Eve was created after Adam, the fact that she came from him indicates that the genders were meant to live in perfect harmony with each other. God made even our sexual and reproductive anatomy in perfect complement to the other. But this complementarian view of our anatomy extends way beyond biology. Emotionally, spiritually, and mentally, the man and woman were meant to be perfect fits for one another. Okay, this also helps us dispense with a wrong understanding of the word helper. God did not make a servant for Adam. She did not come from his feet, nor his head, but his side, representing the together relationship that, that they would share. God was not making someone to do Adam's laundry. He was making someone to cure Adam's aloneness. This is really important. Okay, so let's look at verse 19 and following to see what happens. This is now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Okay, so God does something first. Before curing Adam's aloneness, he gives Adam a task. And the task was to name the animals. Uh, probably were to envision this as Adam naming the species that were indigenous to the Garden of Eden. Like, we probably shouldn't have in our minds this long line of animals, you know, coming by, you know, like, what am I? Hippopotamus, you know, like, it's probably not what's happening. It's just the animals there in his region. Okay, in, in the ancient world, and to a lesser degree in our world, when, when you name something, or you name someone, what are you doing? It's like you're expressing dominion over them, responsibility for them. We've already seen God naming things in Genesis. It's his way of 
expressing his dominion, and he told humanity to also have dominion. And that's what Adam's doing. He's expressing the dominion that God gave to him over creation. He's above the animal kingdom, responsible in a sense for it, and has dominion over it. But the job that God gave Adam also served a really cool purpose because it says in verse 20 that there was not found a helper for him. You know, he's just looking around in the garden, naming all these animals, and he realizes, like, there's, there, I, I'm not drawn to any of these animals. So, so here's how it worked. God saw his aloneness first, but it's almost like Adam didn't see it. But then through this process or this task, as the animals came, male and female, but there was no female for him, he began to realize and understand, I'm alone. So the Lord God, verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So God put this deep sleep on Adam. And I want you to just think about the order of events here. First, God thought that Adam's loneliness or aloneness was not good. Then God made Adam see his need through his life and task that he gave to him. Then God put him to sleep. Then God fashioned someone. Then God brought that woman to Adam. And the reason I mention that order is because I think, look, I'm a pastor. I'm up here teaching right now, but I'm a pastor teacher. So that means there are times where I need to get in the muck of someone's life. And a lot of times I've discovered that some of the greatest pains that human beings bring into their experience is when they lose their head and pursue a relationship that they should not have pursued. Too often when someone perceives their aloneness, they begin to hunt. And I I think there's a reasonable and godly way to pursue marriage. But I think a lot of times this pursuit becomes an all-consuming fire. It becomes another God in place of the true God. And it shouldn't be that. So while Adam slept, God took care of him. He provided for his child. And, and, And if that describes you, if you're living the single life and you want to be married, commit it to God. Take care of your responsibilities in this life and let God take care of his. And I did want to mention, I I wrote, I think it was last year or the year before, I wrote a very long article because I realized that so many people meet nowadays online. And I wrote a really long article. It's called 21 Questions to Help You Sift Through an Online Dates Christianity. Because I've been grieved by this so many times to see someone say like I met him he's a it says Christian on his profile and then a couple of kids later you realize Christian didn't mean the a real thing to him and so uh, you can catch that online if that's helpful to you okay but let's go on in the passage verse 23 you guys have been a great class we're getting close to the end here then the man said this is at last This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay, So Adam sees Eve, 
And she knew, I mean, he knew when he saw her that she came from him. He knew they completed each other and would together bear the image of God. He knew that she was an altogether different category from anything he'd seen up to this point. He was man, but she, she was not him. She was woman. And therefore, it says in verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, when he says it this way, when Moses writes it this way, it's clear that he's establishing a forever pattern. You see, Adam, it, it says you have to leave your father and mother. Adam had no mother and father to leave. So this is held out as the ideal forever. First, there's a separation from the family of origin. Second, there's a holding fast of his wife. And finally, they become one flesh. And the one flesh relationship between a husband and wife is constant throughout Scripture. It's not just here in the Garden of Eden and then left to be forgotten. It's repeated over and over again throughout all of the Bible, through the Old and New Testament, and expresses the idea that one man and one woman come together as a spiritual and physical unity together, in a sense. In marriage, the two become one. Adam was always supposed to know that Eve came from him and was part of him. And so he would nourish and cherish her because of where she came from. And Paul used this idea to exhort Christian husbands in Ephesians 5 by pointing to that oneness that married couples have with each other. Married couples are one flesh, made so by God. That's why at weddings we say, what God has brought together, let not man separate, quoting Jesus. Paul went back to the original marriage here in Genesis 2, verse 24, to say that husbands should sacrificially love their wives by living out their oneness that they have with them. You see, Christian married couples are one together. Married couples are one together. Just as the church is in union with Christ, so husbands and wives are joined to one another. In the Roman way of thinking, a man was supposed to have three women in his life, a wife, a soulmate, and a mistress to enjoy sexually. But the Bible paints a different picture. The Bible paints a picture that a husband and a wife can find all of those elements of relationship in each other. Uh, that, that, um, that in married love, one woman can be everything that her man needs and vice versa. And this is important because I think so many of us in this room, we've come from broken families and have many times been disillusioned by marriage. But here's the thing. If you love Jesus, if you walk with God, if you keep on trucking along in your sanctification process, you can, I would even go so far as to say, you will have an awesome marriage. But we can't be scared off because of what is happening in our world and culture. Okay, let's read our last verse together. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, they're just sinless. There's no brokenness. They're just innocent before each other. The, the implication here is that there's no shame before the fall. They were just able to enjoy each other in every way, even sexually. 
And, you know, we read verse 25, and it might even feel a little awkward to us. You know, there they are, they're naked, they're not ashamed. It's almost like you want to look away, like, oh, that's private. But the ancient Israelites, when they read this, it was really jarring for them. Because they had a law which, over and over again, talked about nakedness and uncovering nakedness and how it shouldn't be done and all these different things. So they were very bashful about these things. But here in the garden, in this married, blissful state, God puts his seal of approval on the nakedness of this couple. Okay, let me just close by saying this. The common view in our world is that Christianity is repressive and anti-sex. And I know that there are, I I know plenty of Christians who are repressive and anti-sex, but it's not because the Bible teaches them to be that. The Bible is thoroughly pro for sex. Consider verses like these, Proverbs 18 and 19. He says to his son, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. All right, this is in the Bible. Some husbands are like underlining that right now. (laughs) Song of Solomon, verse four and six. She says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. This is a, a poetic way of talking about a sexual relationship and orgasm taking place in that relationship. Something that God has designed. And then modern translators have a tough time with 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3, because it makes them feel weird, so they use phrases like marital responsibility, duty, due affection, giving of conjugal rights. But the New Living Translation, I like the way they say it. they're, They're very bold. They say the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Scripture's clear. God is interested in promoting the sexual life of heterosexual married couples. To him, sex inside marriage is beautiful. He invented it. It was part of his original and untainted creation like we're seeing here. Okay, Here's why it's beautiful inside creation but not outside of it. Inside marriage, it's intended to be safe. Build trust, serve someone else, lead to a family, and serve as a glue that binds a couple together. But it's none of those things outside of the context of marriage. It's not meant to lead to a family there. It's not meant for serving someone else. It doesn't lead to trust, but more anxiety, like are you going to be here in the morning? And it doesn't create glue to bring a marriage together outside of it. But because of sin, it might not be these things even inside of particular marriages But outside of a marriage, it's never these things. So if you're married, I just encourage you, don't invite impurity into your marriage. Don't allow lust or pornography or abuse or neglect or atrophy into your marriage bed. The fire of sexual love belongs in the fireplace of marital commitment. And if it's put in any other place, the fire hurts us, but in its proper context, in the fireplace of married love, It warms, it helps, it does good. So I don't know if you want to call that your homework, but there you go.